trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. It's true, the battle for your mind is real and I'm not here to tell you what to think. But I am here to offer hopefully thought-provoking content that will cause you to think a little more deeply, a little more clearly, and a lot more independently about the things going on around us. I encourage you to come and find camaraderie and courage because I believe that uh, within the sound of my voice is uh, a hero. It may be you. Maybe you haven't figured it out yet, but but someone is is looking for encouragement, and that's what I hope to offer you. And I do it with the help of great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They make it possible for me to uh, to do this program each day. I appreciate them. There's a link to them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you could show them some love by either doing business with them or just simply letting them know that their message reached your ears that would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you in advance. You know, there are very few things in life that can make us happier and more productive than learning to separate politics from most of our daily activities. Came across a remarkable article by uh, Joaquin Book. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. The Route of Least Resistance. And he says, when I was younger, I enjoyed the American teenage drama, The O.C., set in Newport Beach, California. That was a somewhat cheesy, teenage angsty drama involving love and teenage rebellion and a poor and criminally burdened high school kid thrown into the spoiled lives of remarkably wealthy Californians. The puns were fantastic. The one-liners were great. The soundtrack, absolutely perfect. And the characters, beautiful and captivating, and most importantly, there was quite a lot of social wisdom to be found. Now, he says, in one scene in the second season, Alex Kelly, played by a young Olivia Wilde, gives advice to one of the show's main characters, Marissa Cooper, played by Misha Barton, about how to endure conflicts with her mom. Alex says, you know, my mom used to drive me crazy, too, and then one day I decided I just was not going to let it bother me anymore. Marissa says, well, you make it sound so easy. And Alex tells her, no, every time my mom channels Satan, I take a deep breath, count to three, give her a big smile, and I say something like, interesting idea, mom. I'll give that some thought. Her friend asks, and that really works? To which Alex responds, women like that. They thrive on confrontation, but if you refuse to engage, there's not really anything they can do. Now, Joaquin Book says, look, these days I advise people to do the same with occasional exceptions made only for people who you truly trust and whose meta-values you truly share. Now, this is in contrast with Alexander Solzhenitsyn's line, every man always has a handy, has handy a dozen glib little reasons why he is right not to sacrifice himself. And it runs entirely counter to the New Year's wishes I offered for the Swedish libertarian site Kospea, translated here, which says, the challenge before us is this, Strike back against evil whenever it reveals itself in the familiar form of ruling from above or in the sinister form where we ourselves go astray. 
speak truth, create value, make your immediate surroundings a little better than how you found it, undermine evil wherever you can, whenever you can rather, avoid tax whenever you can, ignore immoral laws when nobody sees or if you dare when everyone sees. Enough tiny acts, enough such tiny acts of rebellion and we'll get a better world. Kind of like that philosophy, by the way. He says, then I still thought that the madness and incompetence of 2020 was a parenthetical on the long-run trend of reason's conquest over irrationality, stupidity, and ignorance. But Joaquin Book says something clicked in the months since then. I'm starting to seriously consider that this new normal won't end. It may have been the increasingly infected conversations or rather disconnected monologues over the coronavirus and the measures supposedly enacted to contain it or the blatant power grabs and controlling nature of politicians from one end of the globe to the other. Other definite candidates are the unscientific claims ruling the show about everything from the virus's origin, the cringeworthy measures to prevent its spread, the reinstitution of masks despite ostensibly perfectly working vaccines, the inability of vaccines to liberate us from the controlling grasp that was supposed to last for only a few emergency weeks, or the deeper and harsher crackdowns on dissenters that were creeping up everywhere. Now, he says a few weeks ago, John Sanders in these pages quoted John Stuart Mill to say that passivity by the rest of us allows bad men to flourish. And the, the full passage reads, with Sanders extract highlighted, let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. He is not a good man who, without protest, allows wrong to be committed in his name and with the means which he helps to supply, because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. It depends on the habit of attending to and looking into public transactions and on the degree of information and solid judgment respecting them that exists in the community whether the conduct of the nation as a nation, both within itself and towards others, shall be selfish, corrupt, and tyrannical, or rational, enlightened, just, and noble. End quote. Now, Joaquin Book says, look, this I believe is right. If everyone follows my controversial advice above, evil will thus triumph. We do need to hash it out, and we do need to object to obvious falsehoods and abuse of power. But he says what we don't need to do is to knowingly turn ourselves into martyrs. Note that Mill's qualification depends on the degree of information and solid judgment respecting them that exists in the community. So he's not simply saying that good people ought to speak up against atrocities and it would be a moral failure not to. He's saying that a nation where good information and solid judgments are not respected becomes selfish, corrupt, and tyrannical rather than rational and enlightened, just and noble. So he says America and its fellow Westerners are way past that already, well on our way to that corrupt and tyrannical place that Mill feared. So to have an honest conversation with anybody whose point of view you disagree with requires both of you to live in a universe of shared commitment to truth, of solid judgment respecting them. Changing another's mind or changing your own on the basis of another's argument requires your mind to be open for a person to consider, if ever so slightly, that they might have it wrong. 
It requires both participants to agree on truth and the search for objective knowledge to be the highest goals. If they do not, arguments serve no purpose. Anything less in your skeptical opposition to the one true faith will only strengthen the fervor with which others hold their convictions with the full arsenal of dehumanizing treatments unleashed upon you. Thus, each and every one of us must weigh whether ousting one's concerns and raising one's objections are worth the societal and personal scorn that you're likely to receive. Yes, we can all find little reasons not to stand up to unjust tyranny, but perhaps those reasons aren't so glib or little, though if anybody would know, it's Solzhenitsyn. Perhaps madness is one, and perhaps the best we conquered believers in reason can do is endure the night and gather our strength for another day. Arthur Herman, in the book on the Viking legacy on today's Scandinavians, showed that this is how many Scandinavians approached World War II, a global disaster they could not avoid, yet neither could do much to prevent. Still, he said, quote, many Scandinavians chose the route of resistance, sometimes quiet, sometimes violent, but always with the aim of remaining true to their national and personal honor, a choice dictated by the imperatives of the Viking heart. Now, the alternative to willingly immolate oneself in a government town square to the sound of a government trumpet blaring, as Judge Napolitano tells it, is to embrace the advice that Alex gives Marissa. When you're faced with infectious disagreements, stare down political zealots and opponents with your friendliest smile and just say, interesting idea. I'll give that some thought. Deflect and hide. Don't engage. Politics, he says, I'm beginning to believe best belongs in the closet rebranded and brought out for this specific, the specific occasion, or perhaps in the bedroom, with those you most trust, love, and respect. But not in public, not with strangers, not with friends, and most certainly not with other people in your community. So regarding politics, he says, purge it from your being as much as you possibly could, and refuse to let political issues invade the areas of our life that we cherish. Politics and political disagreements don't belong there. And he says our lives are too important to be ruled by mostly contrived political disagreements. Okay, there's some very sound advice there. And I think you'll notice the people who are most driven by that dynamic of politics is everything tend to be among the most unhappy people that we will ever know. Show by example there's a better way. Don't be that person. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, I mentioned uh, Judge Napolitano in the last segment, and uh, I don't want to springboard from that into a piece of his that was published earlier today on lewrockwell.com, another great resource for wrong thinkers. Now look, consistency in our principles is an essential part of personal integrity, but that does not mean that it's easy to be consistent. For instance, how many people uh, complain when the president tries to force mandates via executive order, but then turn around and cheer when a governor does the same thing to prohibit those mandates? Hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. Well, Judge Napolitano has a very thought-provoking take on how edicts are not the same thing as laws, even when they favor our side 
in a particular battle. Napolitano says it's distressing for those of us who believe that the Constitution means what it says to observe the destruction of liberty caused by vaccine mandates. On one side of this destruction are those whose opposition to vaccines finds comfort in the executive orders of Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, who purported to prohibit private businesses in Texas, from mom-and-pop stores to Fortune 100 conglomerates, from requiring their employees to prove COVID-19 vaccinations in order to use the employer's private property. On the other side of this chasm are supporters of President Joseph R. Biden, who announced last month that he plans to order the Department of Labor to compel all employers in America of 100 or more persons to require their employees to prove vaccination against COVID-19 on the employer's private property. So one edict prohibits behavior on private property. The other edict compels behavior on private property. But both violate liberty. In neither case has the issuer of these edicts sought legislation to accomplish his goals. Abbott wants to protect the employees' rights of conscience who reject vaccines, but he's done so by invading the sovereignty of private property and business judgment. The former allows the legal occupier of private property to decline to obey any regulation not properly enacted into law that tells him how to use his property. The latter allows the owner of a business to make business judgments free from government interference. So the president as well has threatened, as of this writing, he's not published his executive order, nor has the Labor Department promulgated any regulations consistent with the threatened order to interfere with private property and with business judgment. Now, Napolitano says both the governor and the president have violated basic rights in order to accomplish their goals, and neither has abided by the Constitution that both have sworn to uphold. Can they do this? Here's the backstory. He says, when the Constitution was drafted at a secret convention in Philadelphia in 1787, the states that sent delegates were expecting proposed amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Instead, the convention produced a new constitution with vast opportunities for expansive federal power. However, the core of the constitution is the separation of power. Now, that wasn't a novel idea. It already existed in the 13 states. The separation of powers requires only that Congress writes the laws, even if uh, and only the president enforces them, and only the judiciary decides what they mean and if they are consistent with the Constitution. Now, when the modern Supreme Court addressed this, it ruled that separation was not created to protect the hegemony of each co-equal branch of government, but rather to prevent the accumulation of too much power in any one branch, at the expense of Americans' personal liberty, by enabling each branch to be a check on the other two. Now, the court has also held those branches may not cede power to one another. In plain English, that means the president cannot write the laws, the courts cannot enforce them, and Congress cannot interpret them, even by the consent of the branches. Tucked into the Constitution is the Guarantee Clause. This requires that the states must have a Republican, as in lower R, lowercase r, form of government. Stated differently, the states must also employ the separation of powers with the same legislative, executive, and judicial separation as the federal government. 
Now, back to the Texas governor and the president and their mandates. By issuing edicts that purport to regulate the use of private property, both Governor Abbott and President Biden have violated the natural law of property and the Constitution. The natural law states that the very definition of private property excludes the lawful owner or occupier of the property to enables rather the lawful owner or occupier of the property to exclude whomever he wants, including government, from his property. So when the Texas Rangers or inspectors from the Federal Department of Labor come onto private property to see if the Abbott order or the Department of Labor order, if it comes, are being honored, the occupier of the property, the employer, should not admit them. Now, what about public policy? When the Palatano says that can only be established by the legislative branch of government, not by executive edicts. Which brings us to the other grave violation committed by both Abbott and Biden, the violation of the separation of powers. Since Congress can only write laws that interfere with Congress, with commerce, rather, and in Texas, only the legislature can do so, these executive edicts are void. Do you see what he's saying here? We have a conservative Republican governor and a liberal Democratic president effectively doing the same thing. Both are regulating private property without legislation. Now, of course, even if they had legislation, all regulations of private property are presumed void under the natural law and are unconstitutional unless the government can prove fault by the owner and harm to someone else. And self-ownership of our bodies precludes all compelled vaccinations, even those legislatively authorized. Good to remember that. So Napolitano says Abbott has issued and Biden has threatened to issue edicts affecting the use of private property, then calling the edicts laws and engaging law enforcement to compel compliance. So if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Most people would say five. No, the answer is four. Because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. In the very same sense, calling an edict the law doesn't make it the law. Edicts issued by the executive are unworthy of compliance if they purport to create new law or assault property rights or personal liberty. And the law enforcement personnel who took the same oath as the Texas governor and the president to uphold the Constitution should decline to enforce them. Now, if we tolerate fundamental violations of our rights when they temporarily please us, we lack the intellectual honesty to resist all violations. Why do we tolerate any violations of natural rights or of the Constitution by those whom we have hired to protect them? This is one of the things I do love about Judge Napolitano. He is consistent in his principles. Got a link to it in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. I also hope you will take a moment and click on the link lifesavingfood.com. It's right there in the show notes, and they are one of my prime sponsors. And I, I, don't, I don't want to try to scare people. You know, time is short. The apocalypse is coming. Do you have your food storage? I don't think you should be operating out of fear. I think you should be operating out of, you know what? It makes sense that we would want to have some long-term food storage put away. We're talking 25-year shelf life, you know, for a time where there isn't plenty or a time where it's difficult to get the things that we need. Well, they've got some great packages to choose from. 
whether you're looking for, you know, the equivalent of a 72-hour kit or whether you're looking for something, you know, more substantial like a full food storage program. Be advised, food prices are going up. This is affecting the food storage industry as well. So, I mean, you can wait for what you hope is a more opportune time. I can promise you the prices will be higher. It's just a fact of where we are right now. But selection is good. My listeners get a 20% discount by using my name, H-Y-D-E. Just put hide in as your coupon code, and you'll get a wonderful discount courtesy of lifesavingfood.com. Check them out. They're in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. couple quick things I want to make you aware of. If you get value from the various stories that I share here, and, you know, I I realize not everybody has time to sit and listen to uh, the full two hours of show that I do Monday through Friday, but I do publish show notes each time that I do the show. And if you want to visit my website, thebrianheidshow.com, you got a couple of options there. You can subscribe. It's free of charge, and I will email you my show notes every time I publish them. If you're another radio host and you want to, you know, skip on your show prep, hey, this might be, you know, <clears throat> a great way to go. I'm, I'm doing the hard work of finding hopefully worthwhile topics. You also, if you find value in this program, can become a supporter. You can become an actual subscriber and either a monthly supporter or a yearly supporter. I've got some nice perks for those who are yearly supporters. In fact, I just got in another shipment of my Wrong Thinker mugs. So... Consider it and and know that it's greatly appreciated. I appreciate your support. Particularly, I appreciate you listening in the first place. And and I wanted to share something with you about, uh, about being a quitter. I know that has a very negative connotation, right? It's almost, nobody's going to tell their kid, honey, you need to be a quitter. <laughs> we, we tell our kids exactly the opposite. But I'm going to suggest that if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed... And if you find yourself feeling hopeless from all the division that we see around us, there's a way to fix that. And it starts with quitting putting so much emphasis on politics and working on being a good person instead. Now, in my day-to-day search for interesting and hopefully relevant content, I visit a number of different uh, websites, news aggregators, and even discussion boards, just because I know there are people out there way smarter than me who have an interesting take on things. And sometimes these these discussions span a really wide range of topics, from history to how to cook a particular dish to where to find a good deal on wool socks or what was the best song of the 1960s. By far, politics seems to be the common driver of most discussion. And I suspect it's like that in many corners of the online world. Well, some time ago, what caught my attention was a post by a very long-time respected member of a gun discussion board. And he announced that a heavy burden had been lifted from his shoulders, and he went on to explain that he had decided 
not to participate in any more political discussions. Now, as a recovering political junkie, that got my attention. Because it was fascinating to see another person who had lived and breathed politics for many years reach that point of diminishing returns. That's not an easy thing to admit. Come on, after decades of conversational and emotional and intellectual investment, it's pretty tough to admit all that effort probably changed very few minds. And I was particularly struck by this individual's recognition that he hadn't even realized the conspicuous load that he'd been carrying until the moment he chose to set it aside. And with that shocking realization came the recognition he could have set it aside at any time. He said there was no legitimate value found in having spent decades of his life talking about all the gory details of corruption of certain politicians and political parties and special interests. In fact, as I recall, he said focusing primarily on political malevolence and negativity had in many ways made him a more negative person. And the question that he asked was very insightful. Because he asked himself, what if I had invested all that research and conversation into things that uplifted myself and others? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Or if you've ever come to the same kind of realization that he did. But upon coming to that realization, he then resolved to shift his focus to fixing things over which he has actual influence. Starting with himself, his family, and the truly important relationships in his life. And he committed to ramping up his efforts to positively influence people around him, rather than simply argue with them. Now that story struck a chord with me because I recognize that uh, I've walked this very same path and actually come to a very similar conclusion. I learned very early on in my talk radio career that there is a very large and loyal audience that loves to be told who they need to be angry with and what to fear. And the more red meat that I threw and the more demons that I gave them to wrestle, the more my audience loved me and listened to me. But there came a point where I found myself asking, is this accomplishing anything worthwhile? Because fear and enemy-driven folks weren't being motivated uh, so much by evil or stupidity as just that need to define themselves by what they were against rather than what they were for. And by the way, that tendency isn't limited to any one side of the political spectrum. I think one of the hardest things that any of us will ever come to understand is that it's always going to be easier to feel good about just proclaiming yourself to be against something. I'm against slavery. I am against people being evil. That's easy to do. You don't really have to even have skin in the game. And it's much harder to actively live an uplifting and righteous life. In fact, if I could paraphrase Chesterton, it's not that such an approach has been been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been tried and found difficult. But there's a world of difference between these two approaches. And I understand as well as anybody, getting caught up in political bickering is so easy to do. Virtually every one of our information delivery platforms is saturated by politics. No wonder so many people appear to struggle with feelings of hopelessness. 
For some, it's become what writer Claire Wolf has described as a daily dread supplement. And we can become addicted to the need to feel fearful or angry. Over time, it becomes part of our routine. We depend on it. Get up in the morning, got to check the headlines. I got to know what I'm mad about today. All right, well, breaking that cycle of dependency first requires the the willingness to admit that there's a problem. So if we find ourselves constantly arguing with others or complaining about them or even feeling the need to confront the ones who hold a different point of view, the sad truth is the deficiency is in us, not them. And that's because the majority of political discussions have turned into a form of competition that's rooted in pride. I mean, think about it. We're kept artificially divided by politicians and their enablers who are trying to consolidate power over us by keeping us constantly looking for favors for our tribe and chastisement for everybody else. Whoever described politics these days as just, you know, it's a means of punishing those who disagree with you. That seems to sum it up. But when we step outside the box and we forge connections based on commonalities, we reduce the power of those politicians. We reduce their influence over us. More importantly, we become the kinds of individuals and neighbors who can be counted on by the people around us. Isn't that worth more? Our constructive actions will do far more to earn the trust of others than will our ability to put them in their place, either online or in the real world. So if you found yourself feeling a sense of hopelessness at the irrationality that is taking root all around us, this is where hope can be found. It starts with recognizing that individual goodness, backed by principled action, will move mountains that angry words never will. I'm so grateful to people like Paul Rosenberg, probably one of the most influential writers that I've encountered, and 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 he has a very simple approach. Do you want to have influence? Do you, do you want to be able to speak to people who are, are brainwashed? And I say that with the understanding that we're all brainwashed. If you want to be able to influence people in a very positive way, it starts with losing the need to win. If you got to put people in their place, I say this with all the love in my heart, you're not coming at this from a good place. And you may end up actually doing more harm than good. Got to tame that pride. Got to lose that need to dominate people and to make them admit, I'm right, I'm right and you're wrong. The purpose of a discussion, even a spirited discussion, should be that both parties are able to go away at the end wiser for having participated in it. Whether their minds have changed, that's irrelevant. That wasn't really the purpose, was it? The purpose should have been to help each of us see better what we may not be seeing. And just because someone is standing at a different vantage point doesn't immediately mean they are your ideological or, you know, otherwise enemy. Too much enemy-driven thinking. So consider becoming a quitter if you find political thinking is taking just a little bit too much of your time. I can tell you from experience, there's a lot of happiness in this approach. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They are located at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. These are the folks to talk to if you are shopping for a home in the great state of Utah. They can help you. Most importantly, they can help you without delay. If you go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, there is an email link that will take you directly to Heather Turner at Patriot Home Mortgage. So here's an interesting story. This one kind of blew me away. But do you remember the time when cochlear implants became a viable way to help the deaf here? I was very fortunate in that uh, I had a neighbor when I lived in St. George whose uh, two daughters were, were born deaf. And uh, these girls were among the early recipients, this would have been in the late 90s, of, uh, of these cochlear implants. Fascinating stuff. And I mean, I look at this as miraculous. Whoever came up with it, man, man what a brilliant, brilliant solution. But I had no idea that there were certain groups of hearing impaired people who fought these implants as being destructive to deaf culture. <clears throat> Found a great article here by Steve Saylor called The Grateful Deaf. Kind of a nice play on words. And Steve Saylor says the FDA's approval in 1990 of cochlear implants that enable some of the deaf to hear set off a political struggle. And on one side were the hearing parents of deaf children who tend to assume that five senses are better than four. On the other side were deaf civil rights activists who saw technological fixes for an identity they didn't view as needing repair as stigmatizing and even genocidal toward deaf culture. Now, curiously, this uh, clear predecessor of the Great Awakening, the promotion of deafness as equal to hearing, has never quite taken off the way crazier manias like transgenderism have. Sympathy for the deaf would seem natural, but other identity groups attract more allies these days. The high points of deaf activism were the 1988 and 2006 student strikes at federally funded Gallaudet University for the Deaf in Washington, D.C. over plans to appoint as president persons not fully fluent in American Sign Language. Now, in contrast to residential schools for Canadian Indians, which are now the worst thing ever, boarding schools for the deaf are prized by activists as the font of deaf culture because it's where deaf children can talk to each other in sign language. Yet deaf militants over the cochlear menace appears to have faded somewhat in recent years, even at residential schools. And by the way, he says, when I'm using the term deaf in this article, I'm referring only to those who were deaf as children, like Helen Keller, not adult-onset deaf people like Beethoven. Steve Saylor says, I hadn't thought about deaf demands for a while until reading geneticist Catherine Page Harden's new book, The Genetic Lottery, in which she enthusiastically cites, perhaps to show that uh, eugenics can be woke, two deaf lesbians who are trying to find a congenitally deaf sperm donor to help one of them conceive a deaf child for, as they say, the culture. 
And he says, then I was reminded again by a New York Times op-ed, Fear of a Deaf Planet, complaining that hearing people don't learn sign language. But even that was phrased in less abrasive language than the typical identity politics manifesto. The quote says, rather than a purely curative focus, we should be attempting to eradicate the stigma that surrounds hearing loss. Now, Saylor says much of the argument for spreading sign language would seemingly fit in well with current obsessions such as remodeling American society, the Spanish language, and human nature in general to suit the whims of the differently gendered. And yet, he says, I was struck by how seldom we lately, how seldom lately we hear about the deaf community and their fears of eradication by technological progress. Not long ago, deaf replacement theory was a big deal among the deaf. It's been drowned out, though, by more fashionable entities. Indeed, the Times commenters were largely dismissive, brusquely pointing out that learning sign language is time-consuming and that the deaf are a small minority, so why should they get special consideration when there are more practical projects to undertake? Empathy for the deaf, apparently not a high priority these days. So he says it's useful to think about why there is a deaf culture but not blind culture. Wikipedia's article on the former is vastly longer than its short squib on the latter, which sums up blind people integrate with the broader community and culture and often do not identify blindness as the defining part of their culture. That's because language can be essential to identity. Just as nationalism in Europe was an offshoot of the consolidation of local spoken dialects into a standardized national written language, such as the French government's imposition of the Parisian dialect on its sprawling domain, Deaf culture exists due to the consolidation of sign languages. Now, Steve Saylor says language is fundamental to communication, of course, and perhaps even to thought. So life tended to be extremely difficult for those born deaf, especially if they didn't work out an idiosyncratic sign language with their families. The term, the term dumb, as in deaf and dumb, referred to an inability to speak but it has the connotation of stupidity as well. In some cases, this was the bigotry of the times, but it also connoted an unfortunate tendency. Children who miss the language development window can wind up cognitively impaired for life. How do you carry on a monologue in your head without words? Now, granted, some people get by fine in life without talking to themselves silently, but in general, it's a necessary and useful skill. Fortunately, there exist Sign languages. According to neurologist Oliver Sacks, many signers conduct their internal monologues by picturing fingers moving in their mind's eye. That's, that's interesting. I would not have considered that. Fairly sophisticated sign languages can more or less spontaneously arise in communities with a high percentage of congenitally deaf children due to inbreeding, such as on 18th century Martha's Vineyard, which the deaf movement sees as its utopia because deafness was so common that the hearing learned sign language too. Or in the Al-Sayed Bedouin village in modern Israel. But for most rural deaf children without a critical mass of neighboring signers to interact with, lack of language development could be a lifelong impediment. So Europeans began formally documenting sign languages over the last few centuries. In the West, most deaf children now have access to a very well-developed language of, or system of signs. Now, similarly, or strikingly rather, a sign language can be orthogonal to the local spoken language. For example, American Sign Language is not speaking English with your fingers. In fact, it's not English at all. 
Thus, when in England, ASL signers are linguistically isolated from British signers as English-only speakers are when trying to talk to the French. ASL is an offshoot of French sign language, so American signers can communicate with the local deaf when they're visiting France. Indeed, deaf activism is rather reminiscent of the successful effort by French Canadians in the late 1960s to protect their language identity by wringing major concessions from the Canadian government. Now, is that progressive or defensive? Likewise, ASL-only speakers can be highly protective of their culture. Some fear its eradication by cochlear implants. Somewhat as many lesbians fear that the current population of sex change therapies among butch girls threatens the long-term existence of their sexual orientation. But Steve Saylor says it remains puzzling why deaf identity, like lesbianism, is not in fashion in a time of fervent identity politics. Now, one possibility is that the deaf, due to their speech difficulties, not to mention their lack of musical ability, are not cool in the age of TikTok. Moreover, the deaf are perhaps not as articulate in writing on average. IQ studies tend to find that the deaf have some advantages in visual-spatial reasoning, rather like the blind are more likely to have perfect pitch. But the deaf tend to lag in memory-related details or skills. Sign languages are a blessing, but perhaps not as efficient for some mental purposes as speech languages. Much of the current, current transgender fad is enabled and even inflated by parents who think they're doing their children a favor, but... Steve Saylor says outside of a few hardcore deaf culture fanatics like Harden's lesbians, and they are rare because a large majority of deaf children have hearing parents, most parents see deafness as a misfortune they wish to alleviate. And doctors can make honest money doing cochlear implants. So, over time, there are fewer deaf children. Now, he says, on the other hand... You know, who knows what bad ideas might get spread next on social media. For example, besides deciding they are boys, moody teenage girls have lately been coming down with fake Tourette syndrome. Ever since a YouTube influencer in Germany got big on the internet in 2019 by exaggerating his affliction. So deafness is not in style at the moment, but Steve Saylor says never say never these days. I got a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.